Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Horror Weekly, The Best Satanic Panic Movies. We've come to the place where we joke about the idea of the devil with the horns and the tail and all that. But that is Satan's lie to distract us from the reality of who he is. He is no mask in a Halloween store. He's not what you see in the movies. He is an active, violent, antique God personal reality. And as much as we refuse to admit it, he lives through us. He uses us to carry out his unspeakable deeds. For we are his pawns. We are his demons on earth. We satiate his hunger. If you have the slightest bit of greed in your heart, he will turn it into an avalanche. He will slither into your soul. I've been wanting to do an episode on this topic for quite a while, but a couple things slowed it down or held me back. One was it's really kind of complicated in terms of the event. A lot of pieces and moving parts to the satanic panic from the 80s and early 90s. And then the other thing is what movies and shows count or don't count towards this. It's so strange when you search the phrase best satanic panic movies online, you get lists with movies like Satanic Panic 2019, of course, and We Summon Darkness, the Alexandra Daddario movie. But then the lists also have The Omen and The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby. And so here's the thing. The Satanic Panic started in 1980, or at least that's where I'm pegging it for the purposes of this episode. So (laughs) The Exorcist from 73 And The Omen and Rosemary's Baby, these movies aren't satanic panic movies. I mean, they might have contributed to the atmosphere that brought about the satanic panic. But the way I meant it for the purposes of this episode was movies that dealt with the topic of the satanic panic. And one of the reasons I'm really excited for this is I think the best satanic panic uh, inspired movie or dealing with that topic just came out recently made of of all studios to be films, which I didn't even know was a thing, but is kind of the perfect studio to do the very best movie on this weird topic. And I'm not going to deal with stranger things just because I'm going to try to keep this to movies exclusively. Now, the Here's the distinction that kind of became obvious to me as I was trying to sort out which movies I thought were in and which movies I thought were out, which is there are a lot of spectacular depictions of the devil in cinema post-1980. One of my favorites, which I've talked about many times on this podcast and as a guest on other podcasts, is Angel Heart from... 1987, the Mickey Rourke and 
uh, Lisa Bonet and the and um, Robert De Niro playing uh, Louis Cipher, <laughs> um, which is a great performance, although with not a lot of screen time behind it. And you've got Constantine, you've got Devil's Advocate, of course, with Al Pacino chewing it up scenery to start the apocalypse. You got End of Days with Gabriel Byrne. But none of those really do it for me for this topic. And it's because the only panic that's happening is the duel between the devil and whoever the small, very small group, and a lot of times just singular, um, protagonist is, right? So it's Keanu Reeves versus Al Pacino and Devil's Advocate. It's Mickey Rourke versus Robert De Niro and Angel Heart. Sure, I mean, one person panicking is the thing, but that's not the satanic panic vibe, right? The satanic panic vibe swept the kind of like the whole Western world, at least as far as I know. It brought in things like heavy metal and satanic ritual abuse and Dungeons and Dragons. It was, it had tentacles. And those movies we were just talking about don't match that feeling at all. So that makes this subgenre, at least the way I'm defining it, particularly weak. There just aren't very many good movies in here, but I there is a masterpiece, so we're going to talk about that. And as much as I would love to be talking about the older movies like Devil Rides Out or The Devil's Reign or even 1977's The Car, which is surprisingly satanic, in its uh, implications, it even starts with a quote from Anton LaVey, the founder of the Church of Satan. I can't do it because I got to start with 1980. And when we get to the movie that ultimately I'm choosing as the best satanic panic movie of all time, you'll see why I'm pegging it to 1980. Although I think most people do, or at least from the people I've talked to and read and then seen online. So let's deal with the runner-ups here. There is 2019's Satanic Panic, which is fine. It actually features a pretty legitimate performance by Rebecca, Rebecca Romaine. It's got a fun appearance by Jerry O'Connell. The screenplay was by Grady Hendrix, um, who is a horror author I really like, but also the horror historian who brought us the paperbacks from hell phenomenon, which is so dear to my heart. I bought the book three times. And although Satanic Panic 2019, I mean, brings up a lot of the right stuff and hits a lot of the right notes and the right visuals, it just wasn't scary at all to me. And like the Satanic Panic, although it's a joke now in a lot of ways, was really terrifying and a double-edged kind of terrifying. It was terrifying to the people who were misunderstanding it from the outside, which is what was going to turn out to happen. But it was also terrifying to the people who were tempted by the topic from the other angle. Um, and it, it it had to be that way. If no one felt that way, it, it wouldn't have made an impact at all. And I have some pretty personal feelings on this. I'm going to get to when I introduced the the top movie or my choice for the top movie. I don't want to spoil it yet, so let's just keep going with the runners-up for a second. Then we have We Summon Darkness. Sorry, We Summon the Darkness from 2019, I think. Um, and starring Alexandra Daddario, like I said, and also Johnny Knoxville, amazingly. 
And I really, really wanted to like this movie. And to be honest with you, of all the runner-ups, it does kind of capture a little bit of the feel I was looking for when I thought about this list. It's got the community-wide scope that I was looking for. I was looking for kind of like what happens in Karen Kusama's The Invitation, (laughs) something that like spreads across the vast community or maybe even the world, like this evil rising feeling. And We Summon the Darkness, like in fits and starts, was trying to grab a hold of that and generate it. It accurately situated a lot of how this happened, where people were getting just pieces of misinformation from like grainy news shows and daytime, like news investigative shows, like in daytime, like Sally Jesse Raphael, whoever the hell that was, or um, Geraldo Rivera. And it it also centered a lot on um, heavy metal music, which is an essential part of the satanic panic story. And the acting actually isn't even that bad. Like, it feels the same kind of acting level to me as, like, um, The Babysitter with Samara Weaving. It's, it's, It's good for what it is. The problem is, to me, is it's just a terrible movie. And this is just more proof to me that Rotten Tomatoes is garbage, total trash as a website, because it's, like, 70% by critics on Rotten Tomatoes, which is absurd. I mean, critics, they hate a lot of great horror movies just judging against horror movies, like discriminating. But then this one, they're going to kind of accept. I don't get it. The dialogue is like nails on a chalkboard. Bad. The twists, and I guess I won't spoil them here, although (laughs) I don't know why I'm saving this movie for you if you haven't seen it, but... Um, they were, you could see them coming a mile away. The, the big twists about who the actual villains are were like, (laughs) like so unsurprising. I actually had to retroactively think back and realize they were trying to make them twists. There's a, there's an amazing sequence in this movie and, and I'm not using amazing as a compliment here where, um, some guys are trapped in a, in a room And the people who are trying to get to them to make them part of, like, the quote-unquote satanic ritual um, are trying to get them out of the room. (laughs) It was, like, the most Tom and Jerry shit I've ever seen in a horror movie. They're, like, spraying bug spray under the door to try to smoke them out, I guess, with bug spray. Then they come up with the, the famous, like, hairspray with a lighter thing. And then the, the, the guys in the room were trying to blockade the door, the bottom of the door, with towels? Like, I did I forget how doors work? <laughs> like, I feel like if I was trying to get to you as a villain and you blockaded the bottom of the door with a towel, I figure I could just reach under the door and push the towel away. I don't know. That's just me. But apparently the villains here didn't th- thought the towels were permanent. <laughs> like, they became part of the door's architecture somehow. I don't know. I mean, so much of this movie is so absurd. It's almost fun how bad it is. And I wish I believed they were doing it on purpose, but I do not believe it. There's a famous scene in The Sopranos where there's a holdup of a card game. And it's the character Jackie Jr. He's gotten high. <laughs> He's brought his dumb friends. And they're they're trying to uh, rob this card game filled with like very dangerous gangsters. And 
they are when they're holding it up there's this one gangster who just clearly does not take these punks seriously and he keeps talking at them he just keeps needling them and saying like trash talking them and of course they lose their shit and shoot him which you realize is going to happen 30 seconds before it happens because 30 seconds before they shoot him, you want to shoot him for being so stupid and antagonistic in a clearly dangerous, out-of-balance moment. And that exact same dynamic happens in this. But The Sopranos was doing it on purpose because they they, they were showing you that there were a lot of flawed, overconfident, self-destructive characters in the mob. Here, it's just dumb because... There's these three guys, they're tied up, and they're they're being threatened by killers with candles all around them and upside down pentagrams. And like the the literally the sentence we summon the darkness written uh in you know horror font on the wall across from them. They're holding knives to their throats, and this one guy is like just antagonizing them in the most ridiculous not taking a breath. It, it was like they had a brainstorm situation when they were writing the screenplay and they were like, what are the 40 most aggravating things this guy could say to these killers to get them to do them in? We'll, t- we'll pick the top 10. And then they just couldn't decide on a top 10. And they gave the character all 40 things to say. I did like and find interesting, at least, Mild spoiler here that um, it turned out it isn't a satanic conspiracy causing the crimes in this movie. It's an anti-satanic conspiracy, I I suppose. And the dynamic between the characters Val and Alexis were was really good. They had it was very high energy, really funny um, and interesting. There's a scene, the scene, the, the ridiculous door scene um val is standing back behind alexis trying to urge her on and doing it in like the most hilarious possible ways it's like cheerleading for satan but again the other fatal flaw is the movie is just not scary at all but it is fun if you like so bad it's good kind of fun so whatever but no way that movie could be at the top of a list of best satanic panic inspired films Okay, let's just talk for a second about the 2015 movie The Devil's Candy, directed by Sean Byrne, who also did the excellent uh, The Loved Ones. The Devil's Candy has a really light-touch approach to a depiction of the devil and the way the devil is going to panic people. Um, Not shown very much and shown in really like bank shot kind of ways appearing in paintings and in broadcasts and in music. And then at the end in an incredible visual uh, in the villain's eyes, as he uh, sort of immolates in a fiery uh, conclusion. So the problem here is this movie really should be disqualified by my own, um, standards because it's the devil versus a small band of people and not a community large kind of thing. And the only reason I'm bringing up here is remember the satanic panic is a complicated subject. So there are some 
really distinctive pieces to it. Like I mentioned before, heavy metal music or Dungeons and Dragons, you can't really tell the story of the Satanic Panic without mentioning some of those elements. And in this case, not only does the Devil's Candy use the idea of uh, the devil in music and, you know, messages in music really well, but really the crux of the issue, the thing that pushed the Satanic Panic over the top uh, in real life was the vulnerability of children, the fear that children were being kidnapped and used in rituals and awful things happening. And this movie directly deals with that subject in a really interesting, terrifying and like stick with you kind of unsettling way when the movie ends. Now, it's not a perfect movie. I think it's got its own head up its own ass a little bit, although um, I'm willing to give it a pass for that because Sean Byrne is such a he's he seems like he's he's got a, like his own style. It's like. It's like Hitchcock had his own style, and obviously this is not on that same scale, but I appreciate when you can tell the kind of filmmaker you're dealing with. It's like a Edgar Wright kind of situation, or Robert Eggers, or Ari Aster, you know what I'm saying. So um, even though it does kind of go a little far in that, I mean, fair enough, that's the trade-off we get for... Uh, for having a, a director of this kind of like unique angle of talents into the subject. There's an absolutely mortifying scene when the possibly possessed, possibly obsessed with the devil um, killer um, closes in on uh, two kids playing in a playground, one on a swing. It's just executed. So it's not that it's surprising. I kind of knew how it was going to play out, but it was just so stylish and also just no holds barred. I mean, I, once I realized what was going to happen, I didn't want to see it. I saw a lot of critics really focusing on Ethan Embry's performance, which it's it's good. I, I, I mean, I don't know that I even paid enough attention to what he was doing, to be honest, to give it a fair um, assessment. It's just... Uh, it was so in your face about how he was being visually presented. This would be an interesting double bill with the remake of Candyman. You'll see what I'm saying if you watch The Devil's Candy. But my attention was drawn by the performance by Pruitt Taylor Vince as uh, Ray, as the, the I, I guess, villain. I mean, definitely a villain, but it depends on whether you're counting the devil as a puppeteer here as the true villain. But... Um, just absolutely chilling. And then the the end sequence is so visually striking. Just really good. But I can't spend a lot of time on this movie because it's just grabbing a piece of the satanic panic. It's not giving that community-wide thing that I was really looking for in the beginning. Next, we've got Netflix's recent documentary, The Devil on Trial, which is their doc on the story that was turned into The Conjuring 3 about the possession of a little boy and then this jump from the boy to someone else uh, who also gets possessed and then commits a murder and then used the, the devil made me do it as his legal defense or at least attempted to. And I was pretty excited about this documentary <clears throat> and I think it's terrible <laughs> to be honest. I think it's 
really sensationalistic and shallow and the interviews were good because the people are inherently interesting, but just the framing of it. And you'll see when we get to the, my, my best satanic panic movie, or at least the, my tie for best, um, you'll see that, um, this is going to be a really interesting overlap, uh, because the one I'm picking, I think does everything well that this movie does poorly, but, um, it does capture that sense of, um, is the devil stalking the land, making people do things that they, um, are forcing them to do things that they weren't, uh, inclined to do. And worse yet, because in the story of the documentary, the possession just happens because they walk into the wrong house. <laughs> they literally just go into a cursed house. Uh, it's not like they're, you know, playing with Ouija boards or doing seances or bringing this possession on themselves. And of course, there's a spectacular exorcism and the Warrens show up, which is so aggravating and frustrating. Um, and the documentary does really kind of show us what con artists this couple were and how exploitative they were. But I don't think nearly enough because I don't think the documentary does anything nearly enough. As a side note, there's an upcoming horror movie acquired for release by Shudder um, called Late Night with the Devil. And it's based on the idea of a talk show host unleashing Satan into American living rooms through their television sets. And I'm very excited about this. I actually wanted to see if I could watch it before I recorded this episode. I was putting it off a little bit, but I couldn't get my hands on it. So um, I'm going to remain super excited and hopeful. It's getting a lot of really good reviews. There's positive signs with the cast and the director and the writer so it's interesting, but then, like I was saying, with the pieces of the satanic panic, there's a huge component to the phenomenon that came from talk shows. Like I said before, I mean, Geraldo Rivera's three-hour ridiculous special on this, which I, like, when you watch any clips from it, you just can't believe it, but he wasn't alone. I mean, 60 Minutes was guilty, all the daytime talk shows were guilty, Oprah um, even jumped into the fray. So the fact that this movie is centered on the talk show element of it is really exciting to me. You could kind of cobble together all the movies on my list and get a really good grip around like what the whole satanic panic was about, even though I was looking for one movie to do it. And I think I found it. So we're almost there now. The, the, t I mean, Honestly, I would say that this would be my true choice for the best satanic panic movie of all time, except for I know almost all of you listening will not accept it. <laughs> so, um, but it's at least a tie for the number one spot, which is going to be Robert Eggers movie, The Witch or The Vitch. Now, some of you might be for this. I hear some groans <laughs> coming mystically through my microphone, and I hear some switches uh, turning off, <laughs> like fingers tapping on screens to shut down 
this podcast episode from hate for this movie. And fair enough, I apologize. But let me try to make the case because one thing that the the satanic panic really gave the feel of in real life when it happened because of particularly the daycare center um, controversies and then trials and then actual convictions and then overturned convictions of people for ritual abuse as the people running daycare centers um, on the children is that Salem witch trials, the crucible kind of vibe. And it wasn't just the daycare. It was accusations galore in a lot of different areas. And it was also the complete um, vilification of Dungeons and Dragons and, and people involved with it, which was the same kind of witch hunt sort of feeling. Now, one thing that really surprises me about how divisive the witch is, because, and I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this movie because I love the witch, but it also has a really personal connection with me because of when I saw it and emotional stuff that I was going through in my life when I saw it. So um, I've talked about it quite a bit, so <laughs> I'll, I'll keep this brief, but um, it's uh, basically the thing. <laughs> it's basically John Carpenter's The Thing. I mean, they're in an isolated area. In this case, they're a little more, I mean, I, the people at the, the at the outpost in The Thing put themselves there voluntarily, and these people, this family, move themselves here voluntarily. But if you pay close attention to the witch, you realize you don't know who the devil is possessing or manipulating at any given time. He could be in a goat. He could be in a rabbit, of all things. He could be in Anya Taylor-Joy. He could be in the in the kids. He could be in the father, who I think, aside from Black Phillip, is the true villain of this movie. He could even be in the mom. I mean, she acts in a spectacularly unmaternal fashion at the end of this film. I just, I've seen it uh, quite a few times, and I just never am sure who actually is being manipulated and to what extent, which is that same sort of paranoia and uncertainty that happens in the thing. And these people are trying to figure it out, just like the scientists in the thing are trying to figure it out. They're using the metrics they understand, which are faith and religion and forbidden spirituality. But the reason this truly qualifies to me is, well, reasons, plural, is one, it truly instills, if this movie connects with you, and I know quite a few people uh, that this movie connected with, it's not like universally hated, it does have some fans, believe it or not, um, is the the fact that there is a real sense of creeping, rising dread throughout the entire movie. Um, but it does get almost all of the pieces that I'm talking about, obviously with the exclusion of like the modern things it couldn't touch, like heavy metal music and Dungeons and Dragons. But famously, the most horrifying scene in the entire movie involves a mortar and a baby. And I'm not going to describe it all, but one of the p particularly weird things that happens, and we'll get into this in a second with my final film here. Um, is that it wasn't just using um, children in ritual uh, sacrifices. It was consuming them. And 
um, using them and turning them into, I don't even want to say it, honestly, it's completely gross, but like it involves candles and wax and it's just like appalling. Right. So, but there is definitely some feeling of that happening from this mortar and pestle scene, which is, um, literally people in the theater, when I first saw this film walked out, they, once they figured out what was happening, which was not easy to discern, um, they actually left more than one uh, group. So um, because that particularly weird element of what was driving the engine behind the satanic panic is touched on here, that's one thing. Another reason I think this really qualifies is because even though it seems like it's breaking my rule, because, again, it's just Black Phillip versus ostensibly versus a small family, the community that they broke off from the community, the, the the fact that they were driven out into this border area where they were way more vulnerable. They were not integrated into their own community community. They were like kind of replicating what Puritans did in the first place. When they left England, they went from a big place to a small isolated place to have their own freedom to do live their lives. They, they wanted to and believe that the way they wanted to believe. And then, you have this even smaller offshoot of a family breaking away from the Puritan branch. Um, it's it's really interesting that the it's just like factoring in math or something. The the fractions, uh, the unit sizes are getting smaller and smaller as we go. But the fear and paranoia and suspicions that that they're in that larger community and that's always a part of what's in this movie even though we barely see the larger community they came from we know this panic is widespread throughout the land we know the the fear and loathing of of satan and suspecting your neighbors and suspecting your own family in a lot of cases is also happening in the larger community. What we're seeing take place on the screen is just a sample size of what could be happening just a couple miles away or or I forget how far they are. They're definitely further than that, but like wherever they came from uh, could be happening in any given house um, at any given time in the larger community. And the the fear that's the, the panic, literally the, the satanic panic, that's happening in this family is depicted in such a visceral and unforgettable way, at least to me, that it really is the one movie that touches all the bases of you don't know what the devil's agenda really is. You suspect that you might be able to deal with the devil and you even suspect that you might come out on the top end of it, that you might get some kind of dark power or advantage from it. But it's the riskiest proposition imaginable. And there's the monkey's paw bounce back effect of when it, you handle it wrong, it doesn't just wreck you, it wrecks everyone around you. And obviously the witch was made post the satanic panic era. And there's another thing from that era that I find really interesting. And this is kind of what I was hinting at before when I said I had personal feelings on this. I had two parents, one of which was um, really religious, not church religious, but like very religious in her heart. And then a father who was a, a absolutely hardcore atheist. So it was like they canceled each other out. It was a balance. And in a lot of these um, 
films that depict the devil, um, like um, take, for example, Devil's Advocate, or even better example, although it's not technically the devil, but the exorcist is probably the best example. The force of evil feels really potent, but feels smaller in the scale. It really does seem like at some point God is going to part the clouds and let the sun in and burn away all the um, evil uh, doers. And as long as the characters kind of like combine to help make that happen. But it's, there's definitely a scale issue where it doesn't, it feels like evil is sneaky and takes its opportunities, but it's not nearly as large as the force of good. The um, and the end of the Exorcist really gives you that feeling as you know the Kinderman and is walking away and they're 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 in charge again. Um, Linda Blair is hugging the priest with like a subconscious memory of by seeing his collar that there was there's something good had been done for her or something noble or sacrificial had been done for her, and that's the note the movie ends on. Now, the Satanic Panic era, the actual one in the 80s and early 90s, didn't feel like that. It didn't. It felt like my household. It felt like a completely even balance, like a tie. It felt like the scale of the evil was so large that um, it was almost um, you were you, the people, the good people were outnumbered or hemmed in or. Um, it would have taken an army, it would have taken a mobilization of good people to fight off this evil tide spreading through the land. There's this ridiculous statistic that um, I'm getting from the movie I keep hinting at, sorry to keep doing that, um, I didn't want to spoil it until the end, um, where they said at one point during the Satanic Panic, the claim was that there were almost 2.5 million children um, taken in in one year by the satanic um, cults across North America. Well, there's only five million and change children born in America during a year. That would be one out of two, or like if you're spreading across America, I don't know, one out of three. I feel like that would have been a lot bigger news, <laughs> even though the satanic panic was really talked about and really popular. Um, I feel like if that those stats were holding true, that would be like the most notable event in American history. And we'd still be talking about it to this day. So um, it really just felt like the scale was really put in balance. And in The Witch, it, the, it feels the same to me. It really does feel like there's a set or there's one side of the people trying to do good and they have to live really poor, really sparsely. They have to stay focused. They have to not have fun. <laughs> they have to not let down their guard. And then the other side gets to live deliciously <laughs> and have some butter, which is hilarious now, but was like super rare um, back then. I remember reading, because um, I love playing chess, there was a, 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 a trivia thing about how the first prize in like a chess international chess tournament for world champion um, in like 1940 was a pound of butter. That was like what the winner was going to get. 
So you can imagine how um, lavish butter was considered in the time that the witch was uh, set. And, you know, there's this picture floating around. I've even posted it on the Horror Weekly pages um, a couple times of the actor who plays the witch, not Black Phillip. I mean, he's Black Phillip, but not in goat form. You see a very, very brief couple glimpses of him in the scene where um, Anya Taylor is signing her soul away. Uh, and uh, it's uh, interesting how, um, it, I mean, imagine like the, the, the Netflix show The Crown being set back in the past and then costuming a pirate. <laughs> I mean, it's the most elaborate um, costume. And it looks a little bit ridiculous when you see it in the full light of day. But I still really love the idea. And I like that Robert Eggers was smart enough not to show it all. He knew just hinting at it. But if you get a full look at what that costume was supposed to represent, it really is the opposite of end, end of how Puritans live. It's where the fanciest things have the best things, uh, live the best way. And it's clear <laughs> that if there's someone out there selling that message that you can have power, you can fly, you can break all the social you know, things that are barricading you in and making your life just drudgery and boredom and pain that that's going to be a pretty even fight. You're going to have a lot of takers for that thing. It's kind of like the way society split in Stephen King's The Stand. If you think about like the miniseries, the first one, the good one, the Mick Garris one, um, how many people were in Las Vegas and how they were living compared, compared to how many people were in Boulder, Colorado and how they were living. You get the idea that evil is kind of ahead in, in numbers. <laughs> Evil's recruiting is doing a better job. So that element of the witch also really captures what the era of living through the satanic panic really did feel like, felt like uh, almost outnumbered and that there were hordes of Satanists around every corner and like almost every other one of your neighbors could be one of them. And then there's Black Philip himself, the goat, which... Um, I mean that in both senses because it's one of the very best portrayals of the devil in film, almost untoppable to me. And it's really interesting because the, as far as I know, I could be wrong at this, I'm not like the biggest expert in the world on um, heavy metal, but um, the band Venom uh, came out with an album with a cover art of an upside down pentagram um, and a goat. And it was really kind of the first um, band that was trying explicitly trying to be taken as Satanists like Black Sabbath were obviously, you know, dabbling in occult imagery, but they were kind of surprised <laughs> that people were taking them as um, Satanists. There's a great quote from Ozzy Osbourne when Satanists first started to appear at their shows and invite them to come to black masses or whatever. And they were like, who are these people? <laughs> What's going on? But Venom wasn't doing it accidentally. And I think that's 1980. I think it's around the 1981, something like that at the same time. But that goat imagery goes really to the core of the way to kind of spark a panic like this. And what the devil really likes to do is it really likes to not only beat you, but to send you a message in how he beats you. There's a 
like grim poetic justice to how people lose their deals with the devil a lot of the time. And the witch is very subtle on this, but um, it's one of those things where part of the satanic panic was not just that you're going to lose, but that you're going to lose badly. You're going to lose in the worst way for you. And if you think about how the witch ends, basically there's this, hubris that pride which is the fatal flaw um in in humankind of the father of the situation where he's like i'm gonna go out into nature and i'm gonna conquer it and part one of the way that's one of the ways that manifests in the movie is that he's incessantly chopping firewood not only for fuel uh, and not only for burning fire right the devil but also it just, if you think about it from the natural standpoint, with all that wood stacked, all these beautiful trees being hacked into, into you know, symmetrical pieces, it's like the dismemberment of nature. And this man who brought his family out here and, and thought he was going to be strong enough to hold up in this isolated environment, just like Jack Torrance, thought he was going to be strong enough to hold up for his family in the isolation of the overlooked hotel over winter. And um, in The Witch, the father is equally wrong. But the fact that um, Black Phillip comes out of nowhere and rams him into the, well, he comes out of nowhere first and wounds him. And then the finishing blow, the killing blow, is driving him into his own huge stock of firewood, which avalanches down onto him crushing him, even though he's already severely wounded, um, is just the devil sending you the message <laughs> that you can't chop your way through nature. You're too small and nature's too big and nature will fight back. And by the way, I have a secret um, uh, <laughs> affinity for an alliance with nature because humans deny it. They deny their own urges. They deny their own appetites. Um, and that kind of denial is only going to take you so far. And I, the devil, am going to step in and bury you in the symbol of your own um, pride and your own um, denials. So all around, I would say Robert Eggers' The Witch is the movie post-Satanic Panic that captures as many of the elements as it could, as, as completely as it could, and, and, and does it that way. Well, except we have the recently released documentary from the aforementioned Tubi Films called Satan Wants You. And this movie is spectacular. I am an avid rewatcher of really good movies. Like you, I have that experience of going into a theater and sitting through a movie twice if it's a movie I really love. Um, I did that with a recent movie called How to Blow Up a Pipeline, actually. But never, ever have I done that with a documentary. The only time I've ever been time tempted to do that um, with a horror documentary is Never Sleep Again. But that would be an insane prospect because that documentary is like, I don't know, six, eight hours long. So no way to do that. But this documentary was so good, I watched it twice consecutively. Oh, my God. So let me give you the quick synopsis of this film. And I am going to I can't believe I'm saying this about a documentary. I am going to spoil it. And 
I am not like I knew a lot about the satanic panic. I've done a lot of reading on subjects like that and adjacent subjects. And I just did not know. I knew the vaguest element of this story, but I did not know uh, the details on a granular level. I did not know how it played out for some of the main people who lived this story. So I am going to spoil it. And if that matters to you for a documentary, um, I guess go watch it and come back. Yeah, again, I can't believe I'm saying that about a nonfiction film. Synopsis. Satan Wants You tells the untold story of how the satanic panic of the 1980s was ignited by Michelle Remembers, a lurid memoir by psychiatrist Larry Posner and his patient Michelle Smith. Supported by the Catholic Church, the best-selling book relied on recovered memory therapy to uncover Michelle's childhood abduction by baby-stealing Satanists. Amplified by law enforcement and America's daytime TV boom, Satanic rumors spread throughout panic-stricken communities across the world, leaving a wave of destruction and wrongful convictions in their wake. This film digs deep into the roots of moral panics and cult conspiracies, showing how these events still affect and distort our reality today. So this extraordinary film um, centers around Michelle Smith and her recovered memories and and also the, her doctor, Dr. Pazder, her therapist. And then it spreads out to Michelle's sisters. It spreads out to Larry Pazder's wife, who is a crucial piece of the puzzle here. And then it ripples out to encompass kind of the whole story of the satanic panic. But in a very light footed way, it just gives you enough for that, like nostalgic, if that's the right word, um, vibe from that era, but also just enough to inform you if you don't remember or didn't live through it or haven't heard of it really of what it was like to experience it um, and what was going on then. And then there's just this crazy cast of characters. We, we get all the way to Rome and deal with the Pope We've got a bishop involved, like like it would be in a traditional exorcism movie, except for uh, reversed here, I guess. Um, we have this amazing gentleman who is the first practicing Wiccan priest who becomes a law enforcement person, like an actual detective on an actual force, but actually an openly practicing Wiccan priest, the first known one uh, ever. He's an amazing character. We get Anton LaVey, and then we get a present-day representative of his Church of Satan, who remarkably is one of the the most the centered like voices of reason in this whole piece. Just remarkable that there's all this mayhem. They're playing tapes of Michelle in her therapy sessions, screaming and writhing and, and crying, and we've got... People just freaking out on talk shows and and giving their stories or their recovered memory stories of these awful things and all these histrionics from the TV anchors like like flipping out like Oprah Winfrey coming on and going Satanism that's our next episode uh, get your tickets uh, call in so you can be in the studio audience for our exciting Satanism episode and then they cut to the Church of Satan person and she's like look let me tell you something this is what was really going on we've got a guy named Lanning who gets uh, appointed he's an FBI agent 
he gets appointed by the FBI to become the FBI's expert on Satanism. And he obviously hates it. <laughs> he obviously hates the assignment, but he's doing his best job. And his interviews in the movie are just him alternating between giving some sober-minded assessment of what he thinks is happening. Like, I approached it with an open mind at first. There were tons of cases being reported, like, in, in law enforcement. If there's a lot of smoke, there's usually some kind of fire. So I was keeping an open mind, but the more I got into it. And then, so it's alternating between him giving this kind of, like, here's what was going on narrative between them showing clips of some kind of, like, story of, you know, what's happening during the satanic panic and coming back to him and him being like, these people are crazy. Satan wants you. The movie also shines like an incredible spotlight. Weird that I'm saying spotlight because it, the movie kind of reminded me a little bit of that movie spotlight in its um, uh, approach. But anyway, it shines a spotlight on the power of daytime television to affect Americans' minds in this time period between Geraldo and Oprah and all the countless others and like inside edition and current affair and all these things like these shows were so ubiquitous that you were, you were seeing three or four or five of them a day, but the movie really centers on and becomes very serious, not in a bad way, just like really well done, really skillfully done. Uh, it centers on Michelle and her relationship with the therapist, uh, Pazder, and then Pazder's soon-to-be ex-wife, Marilyn, who is definitely the hero of this particular story. And this is where I did not realize a lot of the things that really kind of ignited the satanic panic. And I'm going to say something here and just to try not to take it the wrong way. I don't know any other way to express this, but um, my impression after watching this is that Michelle remembers is one of the evilest books ever unleashed on a public, um, the damage that it did. I mean, this book really, so there was a lot of preparation to get Americans in the mind of like fearing the devil, the popularity of the exorcist and Rosemary's baby and all those things. There's a really weird, um, callback in this documentary to the movie civil, the Sally field thing from the seventies, um, which kind of unleashed that kind of the the multiple personality, but also the the way to recover memories through your therapist, and it made therapists almost into like priests, like almost like people you couldn't question. They were like wizards of the mind. They were too wise. They knew too much. They they could dig too deep. <clears throat> they were like mental overlords, um, which is super bizarre. Um, so it, the movie was doing all that. But really, it was showing how Michelle remembers was the book was being used in a lot of the accusation cases at the daycare centers and at schools. It was almost being used as a training manual. And the movie really gets into how there was this fad of bringing in law enforcement people into big seminars and instructional um, meetings to sort of certify them on, on their knowledge of satanic ritual abuse and the scale it was at and what signs to look for and that there was money being made. It was being turned into an industry by the consultants and by the therapists and then ultimately by some of the law enforcement people. All of this was being backed by the church, of course, because it bring, brought the Catholic Church into huge prominence. And this is all stemming from this one book. 
Um, and it's not that Michelle members ignited the entire satanic panic, as they say in this movie. I mean, there were parallel tracks of things like uh, Dungeons and Dragons and heavy metal music. But if you look at those branches, that's not how the satanic panic really played out. Right. There was a lot of fear and 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 um, exaggeration about Dungeons and Dragons. But that was an isolated event. That's a way different threat. Your your like child getting obsessed with Dungeons and Dragons is a different threat than your child disappearing, being taken into a satanic cult um, out of the blue um, and millions of them, millions of the children disappearing. The scale is way different. The threat was biggest from this book. And Michelle Remembers was really at the core of it. And that that's where the movie gets very haunting. Very, very haunting. Um, it's because the theory of the movie, even though they don't, they don't explicitly, they say it, but they don't say that this is the thing that we think. They just throw it out in a menu of options, but it's clear that this is what the filmmakers think is going on is Michelle Smith had had a miscarriage. She was in therapy with Dr. Pazder before she stopped the therapy. Then she had a miscarriage and she was really upset. She went back to him for more therapy. Meanwhile, Dr. Pazder had gone on a trip to Africa and he had seen some what he thought were cults. And he saw some rituals and some ceremonies happening there. And he was a devout Catholic. So he came back and he started being obsessed and talking about all these like bloody things and these elaborate rituals that were happening there. Meanwhile, Michelle Smith comes back into therapy with him and she can tell that he wants a patient like the therapist that had the patient in Sybil, which became a very, very popular book and then a movie and made that therapist famous. So they start kind of like assembling this story of her memories coming back where there's there's rituals go figure and these bloody mysterious events. And then in sprinkled in all that is all these dead babies now coming from a person who had just, just suffered a miscarriage. It's absolutely chilling to think that this therapist was trying to construct a story that could become a book and make him famous. Um, and that he had a patient that he targeted that he thought he could um, subliminally push into that. And who knows if he's doing it consciously or not. His ex-wife in the movie claims that he did, like explicitly says that he said to her, I want to be famous like that therapist and I have a patient that's just like Sybil. So she believes that it's that this was an agenda from the start. But what what comes to pass and the thing that I absolutely did not know, I had a very vague memory of Michelle Remembers as a book and how it was attached to the satanic panic. I didn't know how pivotal it was to the events. I should have put two and two together because it's obvious. But um, I I did not know that. Michelle Smith was happily married when this happened. And after the book came out, she divorced her husband, blindsided him. Dr. Pazder, her therapist, also happily married with daughters who are also in the film, who are like, our dad was great. We had the best holidays. He had a twinkle in his eye. Then the book came out. Then he got more distant. Then he vanished all the time. Then he got more hostile with us. And then guess what? He, his wife divorces him because Michelle Smith is always there. She's always there. Dr. Pastor went to her wedding. When, when does a therapist go to their patient's wedding? 
Um, then he he gets she his wife divorces him, Doctor Pazder, and then Doctor Pazder, of course, marries Michelle Smith. And I did not know this. And this is just such a bizarre turn of events because you have a patient feeding their doctor to what he needs to create this story that became so huge. I they went to Italy to meet the Pope. The church took all the transcripts of all their therapy sessions and started pouring over them and trying to figure out like the appearances of the Virgin Mary in them and the appearances of Satan and what that meant for the Catholic church. Like it was a huge story. The book in today's dollars got a plus million dollar advance for, for these two people. Cause they were the co-writers of Michelle remembers they wrote it together. So you have this woman who's clearly fallen in love with the therapist. You have a therapist who I don't know has possibly fallen in love with her they end up divorcing everyone and then getting together and living together until he dies. And she's still alive as far as I can gather um, and, and constructing this story. And so it's like this twisted love story at the heart of something where the love story turns into an ambition to cause a greater story. The greater story starts turns Larry Pazder into a celebrity where he starts going around and giving seminars on Satanism and talks on Satanism like an expert in law enforcement agencies are calling him in as a legitimate expert on this thing based on this, <laughs> these sessions he was doing with this one woman based on experiences that she supposedly had when she was a child. Um, and then it unleashes just hell across the land. People getting accused, people getting convicted, reputations getting destroyed um just remarkable right so there's that angle of it but then the other angle of it is the dr pazder's wife who divorced him she becomes becomes kind of a detective against michelle smith she's like okay well she wrote this book and in the book she made very specific claims like you know, she was being her teeth were being knocked out and she was they were driving nails into her cheeks and like whatever. And this happened in like February of, you know, X year. So she went to her school and was like, can I see the yearbook and got the yearbook? And the, there she is with no scars, no damage, all her teeth in like yearbook photos at the exact same time where she is claiming that she was being held captive and tortured. And the story was so huge and so famous. And the fact that the only person who thought to do any digging on the credibility of the story was the ex-wife because she felt so bad that her ex-husband was getting people arrested and their lives destroyed. And of course, like, you know, she obviously had a lot of resentment against Michelle Smith. So, you know, whatever, but it was, it's just such a turn of events that I did not expect. And then, you know, I got a chill, which never happens during a documentary, right? Because the whole point of this film is that there's no supernatural. It's not like the devil on trial, the Netflix thing I was talking about before that was trying to have it both ways. Like it's supernatural or not. This is a straight rational documentary you know, exposing that these things didn't happen. They were being exploited for gain and fame. But still, you're watching something saturated with all this spirituality and church doings and 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 Satanism. 
And then there's these very strange kind of coincidences that line up. And it just gives the whole thing this vague air of, like, is the whole, is is the satanic, was, is it possible that the satanic panic was just a huge troll joke by Satan, right? Because the, the coincidences that gave me a total chill were, when Dr. Pazder went to Africa early on, before he before Michelle Remembers was even written, um, he when he got there, he was trying to affiliate with a church because he was Catholic, and uh, he wanted to see some of the African rituals or whatever. And the nuns at the church where he was staying kept telling him to go away. And he kept being like, why? <laughs> like, I'm here to help. And they're like, we can't put it in words, but you're evil. <laughs> You're an evil man. You're you're full of voodoo. And they kept telling him, like, we don't want you around. We don't want you. Work. And, like, that is just not what happens. Like, a wealthy person who has obviously, really, truly devout faith, shares the same faith you do, and shows up to help, you, you don't reject that person. But they did. They just, something didn't smell right about this guy to them and everyone else in society thought he was awesome, thought he was great. His family thought he was the best dad. His wife thought he was the best husband. His patients thought he was remarkable. He would go on like when he got famous after Michelle remembers, he would go on game shows like to tell the truth and just wow the audiences like very charming guy, but not to these nuns, which is kind of spooky. And then the final thing to me that was really interesting was Michelle claims in her book, among the thousands of claims that she makes about the things that she saw, is that the devil always spoke in rhyme. She actually gives some of the rhymes the devil says. One of them is, um, I'll be back, you wait and see, I'll be back to take the world for me. So she said he exclusively, whenever he manifested in these rituals that she was witnessing, he always talked in rhyme. And then right near the end of this movie, they cut to Marilyn, the ex-wife of Dr. Pazder, and they say, or maybe it's earlier on, I don't know. I watched the movie twice, so it's all blending together. Um, but they asked the Marilyn, you know, what, Dr. Pazder, what her husband was like. And she said, my mom said that he could charm the birds from the trees and he collected friends like fleas. And the fact that 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 he was being described in rhyme and the fact that they were saying Michelle is saying the devil only spoke in rhyme and the fact that from Michelle and Dr. Pazder's point of view, these people were just coming at them out of jealousy. I mean, they, she, she believed ever that she went through. She believed she actually recovered these memories, uh, apparently. And Marilyn, the the ex-wife, said, I believe my husband believed Michelle. Like, I absolutely believe he thought he was recovering real memories. He also thought he could turn them into an advantageous story. And at the end, he started to have some doubts just because of how out of proportion everything got blown and how much wreckage it caused. But... She's like, at the time that the book was written, she was like, I 100% believe that he believed. From their point of view, they, they've, they've got an ex-wife and a mom like trying to defame them and come after them and say they're making this stuff up or whatever. And the fact that the description was rhymed <laughs> is so creepy. 
And the documentary really is framed and scaffolded like the best horror movie making. It's like an absolute masterpiece, like The Exorcist, in which once the movie's over and you think back, you realize when you can put pieces together that you weren't catching before, and then you give, get that chill, that, that realization that settles in. So to me, Satan Wants You is excellent, and it is the best satanic panic movie made thus far, unless you're counting The Witch, and then that's a tie, but I'm sure most of you aren't counting that no matter how hard I tried. Now, this is a very weak subgenre as they go in horror. Not many films to choose from, at least the way I was defining it. Um, I am excited for Late Night with the Devil because I think that's going to be a really admirable addition. But if there's any movies that I missed that are post-1980 or so that you think really should be included in the category of Satanic Panic movies, let me know at the Horror Weekly Facebook page or um, any of our other social media that you follow. If you enjoy the podcast and want to support it, you can give a five-star review. I don't care if the stars are upside down. Um, that's fine by me, probably fitting for this episode. Um, I'll also put a link to our exclusive supporter group where we're having a great time in there. Just an amazing amount of uh, high level discussions about horror, which is so fun for me to see. And that's all. Remember, Satan wants you to watch some of the movies we talked about. That's it for this. Until next week, have a great horror week.